Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Lu Yin Cho, the driving force behind the Got One app. Lu Yin shares his fly fishing journey, the genesis of Got One, and how the app improves both the individual angler's experience and fisheries management. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And I'm excited to bring the business and consulting skills I've developed off of the water to the Articulate Fly community. If you're in the industry and feel like you're leaving money on the table or the day-to-day grind of running your business is killing you, let me help you find a more profitable and enjoyable path in the sport. Head over to www.thearticulatefly.com slash consulting, and let's start our conversation today. Now, on to our interview. Well, Lu Yen, welcome to The Articulate Fly. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here, Marvin. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on The Articulate Fly. We like to ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Wow. So, you know, I've been fishing since I was a, a really, really kid, but I think my my first memory uh, really s- stuck with me uh, these years was my uncle, who was really the person who got me to fishing and ultimately into fly fishing. Uh, he and his two sons were, were also big fishermen and lived in uh, uh, Cold Spring Harbor, Long Island up on the Long Island Sound, and I was a city kid, uh, didn't do much fishing. Whenever I'd go visit them, you know, they, they would take me out fishing. And my very first memory was, I must have been, oh, I can't imagine, more than like six six years old at the time. They took me uh, fishing for snapper fish uh, in the summer in, in the Long Island Sound. And I thought it was the absolute coolest thing in the world to be able to stay the beach and catch these snapper bluefish one or another with a little, you know, popping rig. And uh, so I caught a bunch of them and they were putting them in this bucket on the beach. And um, I keep coming back to the bucket and think, wow, you know, I thought we caught more fish. You know, I thought we put like 10 of those in there, one. And the last time I came back to get, I realized there were no fish left. And I realized there's a seagull sitting right on the edge of the bucket eating the last of the, the uh, snapper bluefin. We had done an incredible job of feeding local seagulls, uh, you know, a king's ransom snapper bluefish, and we had nothing to take home. And that was the moment where I was I was consumed with outsmarting not only the fish, but every form of wildlife in terms of you know, catching more than anyone else or anything else out there. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, seagulls are, uh, they're kind of like the uh, the rats of the beach, right? <laughs> exactly exactly so swingers so, to the end <laughs> yeah exactly and so lou when did you officially come to the dark side of fly fishing uh so i guess it was when i was again young must have been 10 or 11 my uncle bought me a um a flight kit and I, I have the box. It was a little cardboard green box, and it had all sorts of, you know, cheap materials in it and a very cheap. And uh, I, I was fascinated by the idea of flies, but I didn't have a fly. I didn't know what to do with them. Once I made them, these crazy feathered concoctions I was making at the time, and you know, I kind of learned how to fit with a bobber uh, that would put enough weight that I could throw it, you know, on a spinning. And then it was around sixth grade or no, I guess it was later than that. It was seventh or eighth grade. I met a, a kid who was into fly, had a bunch of trout gear um, and had decided to give up fly fishing altogether because he had become a, um, at that time, we didn't call it that, but he'd become a vegan and was very political about not not harming in any way. Um, and so he sold me this fly fishing gear, you know, for twenty five bucks like that. And it, and I it, it included a 
uh, bat and kill, an old bat and kill reel, one of the very early bat and kill reels. Uh, and I ended up buying a Fenwick glass, eight foot, five uh, and And that was, you know, when I sort of married this fly thing with actually being able to start to learn how to fly cats. And then it just became an absolute obsession ever since then. It was so basically eighth grade. And then I think really in college, I became very serious about it. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it started with that fly tying box I got from my uncle. It seemed like this mech Pandora's box when I was probably like, you know, eight or nine or 10 years old. Yeah, very, very neat. And so, you know, who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what they teach you? Uh, you know, my uncle, David, uh, who was an early pioneer and himself in saltwater fly fishing, uh, his, his sons uh, taught me a lot. I caught my first trout on a fly on the Deschutes River uh, with them, uh, all of maybe five, six inches, but, it, you know, I, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Uh, there was, uh, a buddy of mine, Thorne Sparkman, um, who started way back in the day, uh, the, really the first website discussion forum for saltwater fishermen called realtime.com. Many of us who are, you know, very serious about saltwater fly fishing kind of met the first time on real time. And Thorne and I went to college together and fought together and, and I learned a ton from him. We traveled over the country, uh, fly fishing together. Uh, certainly reading all the books and being inspired by Cray and Flip Pallet and guys like Lou Tabory and, um, and, and, and many others. That was a, a huge influence in my life. There was a fellow who sadly passed away a couple of years ago named Ralph Burtis, who was a long time uh, fisherman in, the, you know, very few people fly fish or really even light tackle fish in a serious way for striped bass, New York City Harbor and Jamaica Bay and in all of the incredibly, incredibly fertile, fecund water um, right under the shadows of uh, of, of the skyline and, and Ralph had fished those waters for many decades. He'd learned how to do it from his, his dad. And he and I became fast friends in the early nineties and I fished all the time. I learned everything about the backwaters of Jamaica Bay and bite from him. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, um, became very close friends with a lot of guys and folks who became guides. Ralph became a guide. Uh, folks like um, John McMurray and Brendan McCarthy and um, David Blinken and, and, and many folks who were fishing in New York City waters, Jim Levison and so on. So learned a lot from all of them. Um, and um, uh, yes, yeah, so I've always had people around me who were incredibly generous with their time, with their expertise and experience and, and knowledge and you know, I always just soaked everything up that they provide to me. But I, I think if there, there was one real mentor in saltwater fly fishing uh, in the New York area was this fellow named Ralph Burtis, who I think very fondly, uh, very sad that he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a real mentor to me. Yeah, it's amazing. I always tell people, I think uh, fly anglers are some of the most generous people you ever meet on the planet. I think that's true, and I try to, I try to live up to that, um, that 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 maxim and 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 that standard. Um, I really believe in in giving back uh, the knowledge and bringing it forward. I mean, I take more satisfaction today in in teaching people to fly fish and fly a tie and and just appreciate are free. I, I almost take more pleasure in that today than I do in catching fish myself. Yeah. It's kind of funny because people always ask me why I don't take more pictures. And, uh, I was like, <laughs> and I always tell them, I said, well, you know, my family has plenty of pictures of me with fish. Um, and right. so that's now really just for me. And when I can't remember anymore, it doesn't matter. So. 
I think that's a good that's a good perspective on things and one I probably can learn something from because I still post too many pictures of myself holding fish on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, don't give me too much credit. It's really because I don't want to put my phone in the drink. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I get that. I've, I've done that before <laughs> many times. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it sounds like you probably kind of have a salt, uh, bias to your angling. Do you have a favorite species you like to chase on the fly? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, I, and, and to be totally fair and honest, I mean, I still hold trout in incredibly high regard. They're they they're probably still at the top of my totem from a a, a target species standpoint. I, I you know when we play that game that we all have. Okay, you know if you you could only fish for one species uh, for the rest of your life, what would it be? And trout is generally way up high on that list um said i think in terms of saltwater species uh i probably from having pursued them and um you know have caught so many of them but at the same time also having been punished by them (laughs) many times and you and i talked before this fall about uh some of my futility uh Today, chasing them, bass uh, are a, a really important species to me, and and one that I have a, a deep emotional connection with, and and um, and spiritual connection with. And so, I, I'd say striped bass is is very high up on that list too. Um, I really have um, in recent years also spent a lot of time uh, fishing for for bonefish and tarpon. And I caught my first uh, ever this this winter, and so those species are are very near and dear to me too. Um, so it, it's hard to answer with just one, but I think for salt, striped bass still are the most meaningful to me, and I have the most uh, kind of personal connection with, and then trout for freshwater. Yeah, got it. And you know, it's interesting because I've you know mentioned to you uh, in our earlier conversations that. You know, I would love to be saltier. I'm just not. And it's just a function of kind of time and location. But, you know, I, I know that there are a lot of conservation issues impacting East Coast fisheries. And, you know, can you kind of speak to some of those for our listeners? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think obviously lots of issues are with trout uh, are in, in many respects better known. And, uh, and, and I think there's been while 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 their trout are certainly um under duress in many of our freshwater fisheries, I think some great work that's been done um to conserve that that fishery and 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 those fish uh, I, and, and a lot of public awareness. I think with saltwater, it is both more complex uh, and and, and we know less. I think the science is not as good uh, because it, it is more complicated. Um, and you know, so if you if you think about striped bass, for instance, when I growing up, um, you know, I grew up as a fisherman um, in the in the eighties, late seventies, when we were in the middle of uh, uh, really a uh, cataclysmic collapse in striped bass stocks uh, and the beginning of, a, a, of the moratorium on striped bass fishing and harvest. And, you know, I, my, I have vivid memories of catching one striped bass in a year and thinking that I had absolutely cracked the code, that, that that was just an unbelievable achievement to catch one schoolie striped bass in a season and fast forward many decades. And I think we've, we've uh, seen the, both the benefits uh, and reap, reap the rewards of very strict management um, during the moratorium. And, and we now catch many more striped bass. And I thought we would ever be able to catch uh, back in those, those early dark days. 
but with that has come some complacency and and people have short memories they forget how scarce striped bass were and you know i really believe that we're seeing um sort of a a second decline in striped bass stocks and populations you talk to guides who fished for you know the last several decades for instance out on the east end of long island is sort of my my home waters now around montauk and Garners, uh, Garners Bay, back into the Peconics, uh, the south side of Long Island, uh, the Sound. Um, I mean, every single experienced guide uh, or, or long-term recreational angler will tell you that the trend is very, very steeply down in terms of numbers of fish. There are pockets and of local abundance. There, there are areas like uh, Raritan Bay, where we've seen uh, you know large numbers of large fish in recent years, but overall, I think most people who really are out there on a consistent basis over the last many many years are concerned about decline in the decline in the number uh, of striped bass and and the quality of the striped bass fishery all, all, all you know all overall. Uh, and there are many factors that are leading to that, um, and that's part of what makes it complicated. Unlike a trout stream, where you know you've got a, a stream um, that's running maybe out of a reservoir, it resides in a very small um, jurisdiction. Striped bass are highly migratory fish that 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 travel across many many states along a complex coastline that has both local state jurisdiction, but also travel into federal waters and, and you know, maybe even into international waters. And, and so even the, the, the management juris- jurisdiction and, and the policy um, that sort of follow those jurisdictions are very complex and varied. And, uh, you know, we like to say striped bass don't wear license plates, right? They're, you, you, they're not from a state they cross state boundaries uh, when we have, you know, conservation equivalency in different regulations across different state lines, let alone once we get to federal waters and so on, it becomes very complicated. And, and then they're also um, subject to changes in, um, in, in water conditions and climate in forage fish, bait fish, uh, they're subject to, and very sensitive to the quality of the water that they have to do with, um, you know, coastal coastal conditions, runoff, local conditions, um, and it makes it very very challenging. But I think that overall we are seeing um, a decline in in striped bass stocks and the condition of the fishery that is very worrisome and uh, that's resulted in some of the emergency measures that uh, were put in place you know this season by the atlantic states marine and fisheries commission um and i think the other problem is the data that we have about these fish and our fisheries is very very poor and we make incredibly momentous decisions about fisheries you know uh in terms of Harvest regulations, seasons, closures um, uh, that are informed by a, a very, very poor um, set of insights and a very um, meager amount of data, and um, and that is really problematic and worrisome because um, we're not seeing the kind of uh, uh, abundance of fish that we should be seeing if we had access to high-quality data and management policies that were really informed by high-quality data, and that's that's I'm talking about striped bass, but you can you can copy and paste that across many of the coastal species and game fish species that you know we pursue as as inshore and offshore anglers. Yeah, plus you, you know, I I would imagine people probably haven't commercially fished for trout in a hundred years, right? Um, in the sense of having someone go out and catch them and take them to a hotel or a restaurant and say, "Here are the trout that I caught today." 
Um, so I would imagine that makes it pretty difficult because, I mean, I think about striped bass. I think about redfish. Um, you know, that's another kind of consumption and constituency that impacts those issues. Yeah, and and there's a lot of you know debate and discussion about the commercial wreck kind of contribution to the problem. One of the eye-opening things for me, as I've learned more about you know sort of the conservation angle uh, of all of this, is that, and this is this was not music to my ears as I, as I started to sort of really appreciate this, but. Recreational anglers have a disproportionate amount of contribution to uh, mortality and to the problem ar- around fish stocks. Um, and and I, again, as a rec angler, it pains me to say that uh, commercial fishers, uh, fishermen are actually quite tightly managed and regulated. We have much better data in many respects about commercial contribution to fish stocks than we do about recreational uh, contributions to fish stocks. Uh, for instance, with striped bass, uh, by most estimations, recreational anglers contribute the vast majority to um, uh, the unintended mortality of, of striped bass. Uh, if you take a species like redfish, I mean, most commercial fishing for redfish in most states has been shut down for the last many, many years. So, you know, any decline in redfish stocks is more probably a result of recreational angling and other factors than it is of commercial commercial harvest. And so not to say commercial fishermen don't have responsibility and there, you know, there are well-documented instances, you know, with striped bass, let alone other species of, uh, of poor behavior and malfeasance from the commercial uh, community. And, uh, and that's a real problem. And I see that firsthand um, living out on the East end of Long Island, but wreck anglers have to be aware. And I I'm saying this as a wreck angler that we can contribute enormously to the problem as well. Uh, and, you know, people think of wreck anglers as, you know, like folks on this, on, uh, you know, on this podcast in your community, will think of wreck anglers as a guy with a fly rod who's got a single hook on a fly and this catch and release. That's actually not the majority of the wreck angling population. Uh, that, you know, there, there are many more anglers who, uh, are on a beach with four rods out with chunks of Manhattan on them and don't even know that they've hooked up a striped bass until they decide to go home and the fish has been hooked for, for you know, 30, 40 minutes. Or guys who are going out on party boats. And, you know, again, this is not to criticize the party boats, but it, it's just much uh, harder to manage for uh, high quality catch and release Um uh, uh, outcomes um, in those conditions than you can with a, you know, a, a guy on a skiff with a fly rod who may catch and release five striped bass with a single hook that's often, you know, barbless. Uh, it's just a different scenario. So even within wreck angling, there's a lot of variability in terms of of what we're talking about. And again, this is not to cast blame in one direction or another. It's just to say wreck anglers our big pro- part of the problem. And I think potentially part of the solution, which is, you know, why we built got one in the first place. Yeah. It's interesting too. Cause I mean, I would say even, you know, catch and release trout anglers, um, can be part of the problem. And I mean, I've been part of those conversations where if you, even if you have relatively low mortality percentages, right. You know, this just immense increase in angling pressure, um, can have significant impacts on trout populations. Yeah. That's right. right. And um, I think that's right. And and I think um, we just have to be conscious of that, right? It, it, you're, you, it, you, no one has, no wrecked angler has zero impact on the fishery, even if you're a catch and release angler. There is an impact and we have to figure out how we minimize that impact. Uh, but uh, we all have, have something, we have some responsibility for, for, these fish and for the, for, for maintaining these fish stocks. Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of back up a little bit back to the striped bass. So it sounds like from a data perspective, you have kind of two problems. You don't have enough data points and then you also have, uh, data quality issues, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I know, I think the first time we spoke setting up this interview, um, Lou, we talked about the fact that you thought that citizen science could help solve that problem. Yeah. So I, I really think 
you know, I'm a data guy. Um, and I come out of the consumer data technology space and actually the education uh, data space specifically. And, you know, I, I believe there's absolutely a role for highly scientific, highly validated data gathering um, to inform science, you know, small number of data points, but highly validated. But I think there's also a role for uh, large data sets that have perhaps a lower level of overall accuracy, but because of the amount of data provides um, a more statistical level of accuracy um, over time. Uh, so, you know, uh, an example would be um, if you're an online retailer like Amazon, you don't survey a hundred of your customers to find out what they're buying, how the website's working, what their tastes are, what you could stock more of, what you're stocking too much of. Uh, you take the data, the, the, the purchasing data and the browsing data from the millions of customers that come to your website um, and you run a regression line through that and you analyze that. And, and some of those data points are going to be inaccurate because they're going to come from bots or people who are just, you know, don't know how to operate the website or visiting, don't really have an intention to actually purchase anything. But if you have enough of that data and you run a regression line through it, you have a really, really good sense of what your customer's intent is, what the behavior is, where you know your products and services are are meeting their needs where you're missing the need um and and i i'm a big believer in that big data and and it, so if you bring it into the fisheries world um you know a lot of the traditional data collection around recreational angling and and the fish that we fish for in salt waters comes from dockside interviews uh, you know, intercept surveys, uh, phone surveys, um, and uh, you know, the last. As an example, I think the last time I participated in one of the surveys, I think I got a call on the phone um, from our local DC was probably like seven years ago, right? So you're not collecting a lot of data because. As many days as I fish out on the water, if the last time I was asked how many fish I caught was seven years ago, you, you can do the math in your mind to figure out that there aren't a lot of data points here. And then, you know, when I was asked that, I mean, I've asked questions about fish that I caught over the last, you know, three months. And uh, I mean, I'll be the first to admit that my memory is not very good. Um, and if I got someone on the other end of the line and I'm busy and I, I want to provide that data because I believe in the science and I want to contribute to, to fisheries management, but you know, I'm busy and I'll give the best answer I can. But, you know, frankly, there's a recall bias issue here. And, 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 and that's, that is the traditional way that we collect data on recreational angling. Um, it's, it's an imperfect science at best, and it's based on a very small number of data points. And, uh, and again, I, 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 I say this without trying to in any way cast aspersions or, or criticize, you know, the hard work that, that fishery scientists and, and managers do. It's just, it's hard. It's very hard to get accurate data. Um, I do think there's an opportunity to, um, Ask recreational anglers to collect data in real time that benefits them, makes that their angling experience better, helps them be better anglers, um, makes it a just a, a regular habit like washing down your boat or washing your equipment or, you know, uh, unrigging your rod, you know, to, to kind of log your catch data. It, it, it gives you much much more um uh insight into your own fishing 
And if we can aggregate that data and provide it as a big data source to fisheries managers and scientists, uh, it doesn't replace things like um, surveys and 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 dockside intercepts and things like that, but it can supplement it and provide a way to triangulate to understand what's going on with our fish and our fisheries better than we can using traditional methodologies. Yeah, and I would say too, it probably could really help kind of figure out some of the selection bias that's in those data sets, right? Um, like who answers the telephone, right? Like all that stuff. Are you honest? <laughs> Forget about being forgetful, right? Yeah, and I, absolutely. And I think um, we can learn a lot from how consumer technologies collect data to kind of streamline the process, make it as easy as possible, seamless as possible, um, and deliver value back to anglers um, in exchange for their contributing that 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 data and that information. Uh, and I think you know that that's those are lessons we've learned uh, from 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 consumer technology that really apply uh, in, in this world of fisheries management and fisheries science. I, I I really do believe it's the future for data gathering for these sorts of um, efforts in general. I, I just think it's it's the right way to do it. And um, it's proven in other sectors and other fields. Um, and I think it will help us to be much, much more uh, insightful about uh, our, fish, our, our fish, our fisheries and help us manage it much, much better than we can today. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's kind of like, you know, it's bringing a, a 21st century tool to a 21st century problem instead of using a 20th century tool for a 21st century problem. Yeah, that's right. And. You know, these fisheries are dynamic. They're changing really fast. And we need more nimbleness, more agility, and more data to, to, to be able to respond, you know, more effectively to the changes in, in, in our fishing environment. And, and so this and kind of your prior uh, education technology experience kind of led you to develop the Got One app. And you want to tell folks a little bit more about kind of, you know, the genesis and the creation of the app? Yeah, sure. So interestingly, I, I, I developed Got One, or the whole idea for Got One started before I even thought about its application to this whole arena of you know, fisheries management and conservation. I, I just was frustrated as a fisherman who was also a very data-driven person uh, that keeping a reliable log on my fishing was so challenging to do. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I, I was talking to my buddy, Peter Jenkins, who runs, uh, the saltwater edge, you know, one of the great sort of online and, and, and physical, um, fishing tackle stores for saltwater anglers, um, uh, based in Rhode Island. And, you know, he said to me, um, that he, he does a podcast and a bunch of videos and he talks to, to, to fishermen all over the country. And, you know, one of the questions he always asks these, you know, these expert anglers is, uh, what are three things that, you know, you would provide as advice to any other angler if they want to get better at what they do? And he said, you know, almost universally, one of the three answers is keep a fishing log. And as a fisherman, I, I kept a fishing log for decades um, because I realize that you know my memory of you know of, of my fish fishing experiences my catches was faulty and there were a lot of data elements that i wanted to capture i wanted to know like hey what time of year did i catch the most striped bass and what tide was i catching them on what moon phases what was the water temperature um where did i catch these fish uh and and so for many, many years, like most experienced and obsessed anglers, uh, you know, I would keep a journal um, back in the day was on stenographic pads. And I would somehow transfer that into Microsoft Word and eventually into Excel. But it, it, it's just very, very difficult to maintain those logs. 
uh, half the time you're, you know, up to your, up to your navel and, uh, in, 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 in salt water and in waders and boots. And, uh, the last thing you want to do is try to scribble something on a piece of paper or you're on a boat and you're helping someone land a fish or you're trying to steer the boat away from trouble or go, you know, chase after another pot of albacore, say false albacore somewhere, you know, a hundred yards away. And it, it's just very hard to maintain accurate records uh, on paper. And so, you know, many years ago, I thought, well, this is ridiculous. What, why aren't we just doing this with, um, with your, you know, smartphone? Uh, the smartphone is always in your hand. Um, you should be able to record a catch with a couple of taps. And the beauty is the smartphone knows where you are, what time it is, what day it is. And through the magic of, of, of the internet, it can, it can figure out what the moon phase is, the tide, uh, the water temperature, air temperature, all those environmental, uh, data, you know, sort of data points that are so important. Um, and it can store it in the cloud and it can graph it and it, it can aggregate it in, in interesting ways. And, um, and I kept waiting for someone to build that app because <laughs> uh, I didn't want to build the app myself. I just thought that's a waste of time. Someone's going to build this thing and I can just pay for it. And no one ever built the app. Um, there, there are phishing apps out there. There are even apps that are, you know, call themselves fish logging apps, but, you know, almost every single one is more about either being like Facebook for fishermen. It's a social network to share your brag photos. Or it's about sort of logging the location of your, you know, the track of your trip, which, you know, I and a lot of guys and other fishermen kind of think of as, as a spot burning app which is not what I wanted to do, right? Fishermen are very private about where they fish. Uh, you know, we really want an app. I want an app that really is just recording the details of the catch and then aggregating it so I have the insights to understand what leads to, you know, better fishing. What conditions lead to my catching more striped bass or false albacore or bonito or whatever it is. And... So finally, I, I ended up about three years ago building a prototype of this app for myself. It was not sort of commercially scalable or available. It was really kind of just a, uh, a bare bones jalopy of an app I built for myself. And in two seasons, I learned more about what drove fishing success for me than I had in probably 40 years of fishing. You know, all these questions I had is the fishing really better the three days after the full moon or the three days before the new moon or, you know, are our striped bass really more active um, at 65 degree water temperature or 55 degree water temperature? It answered all those questions after using that, you know, prototype app for like two seasons. And so a year ago, I said, you know, I got to just build this thing and, and make it available to anglers because. It's just too good, you know, not to share. And so that's that's what led to Got One. And it was really a family affair. My, my daughter is an incredible um, designer and um, artist, designed the, the, the logo for the app. Her roommate is an incredible illustrator, drew, drew all the uh, icons for the individual fish. Uh, my son, who's a... <laughs> Uh, a, a data analytics and business major at Emory University helped me with the coding and the data analytics. And, and then, uh, you know, folks from the fishing community who heard about this app uh, got excited about it. And so uh, Tony Friedrich from the American Salt, Saltwater uh, uh, Guys Association, you know, um, uh, you know, sat down with me, looked at the app and said, hey, have you thought about providing this data on an aggregate basis, anonymized with the location data generalized to multi-mile increments to fishery scientists and fishery managers. Uh, they find it incredibly useful. Um, and um, a fellow named Tom Fuda, uh, who's an obsessed saltwater angler like me out of Connecticut, he just retired from his uh, long career as a software developer. He'd heard about the app and he said, hey, 
can I get involved in, in helping you build this thing? And he's been just an unbelievable partner on the technical side of things. And, you know, it just kind of took off as a, as a mini movement among people who like me saw the power of um, data and modern uh, mobile applications and software uh, and AI um, to make phishing more data driven and informed and, and more insightful and more fun. And, you know, again, Tony uh, from ASGA was really the one who unlocked this idea for me of, wow, if we could share this data in an aggregated way that didn't burn angler spots, um, but really provided a citizen science angle that would allow fisheries managers and scientists to have way more data than they have ever had before about recreational angling and and recreational fishing, um, wouldn't that be an incredible added value? And that's that's how this all came together. Yeah, and it's amazing, you know, listening to you talk about it, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, the data that you're effectively pulling, you know, basically from the internet, right, for tides and all that stuff is way more accurate than any kind of written down analog journal or what you read on the chalkboard in the marina too. So you're actually getting better data. Yeah. Yeah. So we are pulling data from um, NOAA buoys, from satellites, from, um, you know, weather stations. Now, anglers who use Yap can modify that because, you know, I'm the first to say that, uh, you know, sometimes you get this data and where you happen to be is on the other side of a little narrow peninsula and the water temperature is 10 degrees colder where you are than, you know, where the, the actual, you know, buoy is, or, you know, you happen to be in a weird tidal pool where the current works differently than, you know, wherever the tidal station is. So we, we give you the ability to modify that. But the starting point is way more accurate than, you know, most anglers observation is going to be, um, you know, in the heat of the moment as to what's going on, where they caught the fish. Yeah. And you've made it incredibly easy to use, right? I mean, I, I look at it like you can input data by voice, you know, you've got a palette of fish, you kind of do a, you know, it's literally a couple taps and you've recorded your data point, right? Yeah, and, and that's kind of where my you know, background in developing commercial and, and consumer software came from is, you know, I, I've always been relentlessly focused on usability and user experience. And how do you make this, how do you make any software experience something that is so simple that you almost are embarrassed not to use it? You know, so I, I, a lot of these apps to log a catch it's like 25 pages of data and no one's ever going to do that. You might as well take it on a stenographic notepad. You know? So uh, got one, you literally can log a catch with three taps or with your voice. Uh, and we're about to add a feature that allows you to actually record a, a, a catch just with the photo of the fish. Uh, because most recreational anglers, what do they do when they catch a fish? They take a picture of it, right? The picture is aware of the time, the date and the location of that catch, we can now use that actually to create the log entry. So, you know, I really am taking all of my knowledge about consumer software to try to build something that is as streamlined and simple and as easy to get the data in as possible. And, you know, I, that's kind of the world I come from. I'm actually surprised most apps are as cumbersome to use as they are. And, and I think that's a, you know, a, a huge advantage that Got One has over other apps in the market right now. Yeah, and the great thing too is, you know, you know, not just it fixes the faulty memory and gives you better data and you know helps you kind of, you know, fishermen are also superstitious, right? <laughs> so you kind of have to cut through that. But the other thing, like I noticed uh, reading your newsletter, for example, you know, a hummingbird tells you a lot about what's underneath the water, but to be able to get kind of that like Google map overlay uh, of the, of the terrain is incredibly helpful to be able to see channels and points and things like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're able to leverage the incredible advances in technology that are now publicly available. Right. So, uh, we are, you know, when we started with got one, when you log the catch, it was using, 
um, sort of a very generic map. We now use satellite maps um, that we source from Google, and um, it and it's very precise and it's incredibly incredibly useful because the level of precision allows you to zoom in and see not only like oh I was in this general vicinity, but oh you know the last ten fish I caught when I came to this spot regardless of tide, we're sitting on this one little edge of a channel. Um, or maybe they're on that ed- edge of a channel on the incoming, and they're on the other side of it on the outgoing. And um, and you can see that now in all the data. It's not like you're saying, like, I think they're sitting on this side of the channel on this tide. It's like I can actually go and zoom in, validate that that's actually what ha- what's happening. And you know, we do some really cool tricks with the technology where – um, you know, GPS location data can be a little funky and not always 100% accurate. So we actually take multiple samples and we, we kind of triangulate on position. If you don't have um, a cell connection, which is a problem, uh, a lot of times we fish in places where there's spotty, you know, cell connections and internet connections. Um, it's, it's able to, you know, get that that location data off the phone GPS uh, without the internet connection, and then it will sync the data uh, to the cloud um, once it actually gets a connection. So a lot of tricks to make it feel very, very seamless and almost magical when you use it, um, and very resilient. Um, just you know, regardless of your connectivity, your location, what's going on with your phone at, at that specific moment. And it's it's you know it's taken a lot of work, but we've gotten it to the point where um, its ability to pinpoint your location and spot it on a satellite map that shows you all the future details of the water you're fishing is is really quite um, precise. Yeah, and you know uh, before we talk a little bit more about some of the folks that you've partnered with to kind of share the aggregated data. Let's talk a little bit more about you know how privacy is baked in and how anglers can feel comfortable that. You know, if they use the app and share their data, they're not going to come back in three months and find 20 boats sitting on their spot. Yeah, so that was a really important issue for us. And, you know, one of the reasons that I I didn't use a lot of the other fishing apps out there, um, I I primarily want uh, an app that allows me to log my catches and provides insights to one person, me, makes me a better angler. Um, And so, so that privacy was very, very important. And, you know, we, we don't make this a social network. You're not um, having to opt out in order to not share your, you know, latest catch and the location of that catch with every other user of got one. In fact, right now you can't even share that data with other users of got one, but we will add, the ability to create, you know, a network of friends that you want to share with over time, but that's really not where we started. That's not the main purpose of the app. In terms of the aggregation of the data and the sharing it with, um, you know, fisheries scientists and and managers and conservation organizations, um, you know, we 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 talk to scientists and fisheries managers and we said like um how precise do you actually need this data to be like uh can we give it to you anonymized can we give you the location data generalized to a multi-mile let's call it 10 to 15 mile increment and the answer to our surprise was overwhelmingly yes we don't need to know uh unless you know we have a specific program and we want and we ask anglers permission, we don't need to know the exact identity of the angler. And frankly, as long as we know generally what state uh, the data is coming from, we're in good shape. Now, there there are exceptions to that, right, where um, there may be complex um, uh, sort of jurisdictions and regulatory distinctions um, within a, 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 you know, a a particular uh, area like you take the Chesapeake Bay, there may be different regulations at the base of a particular river or estuary than at a mouth or whatever. But 
overall, they don't really. They, I mean, they're not getting that precise data from the, their their the, the data that they're collecting through intercepts and dockside surveys, anyway, right? So, uh, almost universally, when we talk to scientists and managers, they said, "If you give us that data in that ten to fifteen mile increment, that's phenomenal. That's better than we have." So then we turned around and we went to you know the top fishing guides in the country who frankly are the ones that are most worried about, you know, I know a lot of fishing guides who say, uh, if you're using like, you know, this logging app, that logging app, that logging app, you know, not Navionics, you need to turn them off or you can't fish with me. Right. Because they, they don't want to have the precise location information from their trip broadcast uh, and shared. And so when we went to them and we said, Hey, if we generalize uh, the location data around the catch to a 10 to 15 mile increment, um, would you be comfortable with that? And a hundred percent of them said, absolutely. In fact, you know, for the most part, I don't fish in an area that's, uh, you know, uh, bigger than 15 miles anyway. So, you know, have that, you know, they're more worried about protecting, you know, a particular, um, hundred yards, you know, piece of shoreline along a mangrove bank or, you know, uh, a little, depression in a channel that's uh you know 50 yards across you know 10 15 miles is might as well be completely uh locationless for them and so we found that sweet spot where um the most discerning fishermen which are the guides um and the scientists and fisheries managers uh were totally comfortable in terms of the level of generalization and um, and that that's how we that's how we approached it. But, you know, we took the time to ask both of those communities what they wanted and what their fears were and what they were comfortable with and realized there was a sweet spot. And, and I think we were really the first app that's ever done that, gone out and asked those communities what they're comfortable with. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And so, you know, I know you've you've started to partner with conservation and management organizations, you want to share with our listeners some of the folks that you're, you know, collecting and sharing this aggregated data with? Yeah, sure. So, you know, for starters, um, we've had incredible support, funding support, and, you know, sort of input on design uh, and on many of these issues from uh, the Saltwater Guides Association, uh, from the Nature Conservancy, um, and, um, then we are also, um, uh, getting support from, um, commercial partners like, uh, Hatch Outdoors. So Hatch makes Hatch fly reels. Uh, they have a very strong conservation focus. They've been super supportive of us as well. Um, and then, um, in terms of, um, you know, sort of state and, and, federal and 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 local agencies uh we've had a lot of support and interest from the atlantic states marine fisheries commission from folks from NOAA, and then more specifically we're supporting what i think is really a groundbreaking breaking study so this comes back to the whole you know conversation about striped bass recreational mortality but uh the massachusetts division of marine fisheries um uh is doing a multi-year study on um, the factors uh, around catch and striped bass catch and release and their um, relationship with, um, with with striped bass mortality and, and health post-release. So things like how long have fish been played, how long have they been held out of the water, uh, water temperature, the method of catch. Um, are you catching them with bait? Are you using treble hooks? Are there multiple hooks? A level of where where the fish is actually hooked is it hooked in the mouth or the esophagus um the level of blood that's exhibited by the fish they have uh been doing the study using uh paper uh surveys from guides um this summer we introduced got one as a, a way to provide that uh additional data to support uh the mass dmf survey um, and, uh, we're super excited about that collaboration. That's going to lead to some really valuable insights into, you know, how we can better handle, um, striped bass under catch and release scenarios to make sure that they're healthy when they swim, swim away. 
And we're in discussions with a number of other state agencies that are doing similar studies uh, with species like redfish, false albacore, bluefish. Um, so with false albacore, the Saltwater Guides Association is doing a multi-year study um, around uh, false albacore tagging to understand their actual range. Um, uh, for, for many, many years, as long as I've fished for false albacore, there's been a raging debate about whether the fish that we catch in North Carolina or in Jupiter, Florida, are the same as the fish that we catch in Montauk, or for that matter, in uh, the Mediterranean. And the algae tagging project, which was started last season, is the first time the false albacore have ever been tagged. Um, and, and we actually have insights into all of that. Now, it turns out that uh, Montauk fish appear in Jupiter, Florida and in North Carolina. Uh, we're going to be working with the Saltwater Guides Association to use the Got One app to extend that study so that we get way more data. We don't have to actually put a physical tag into every fish, which is, you know, potentially traumatic for the fish um, in order to gain the insights that we want to understand uh, the range and, and the health and the vitality of false albacore, which are really, really highly sought after uh, game fish for light tackle anglers. Yeah, absolutely. And we've kind of touched on this a couple of times, but, uh, or can you share maybe like your forward feature pipeline, maybe the next six to 12 months. So if people are kind of curious what to expect if they're users or if they're on the fence about whether they want to download and use the app. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, the first big thing we're working on, and this is, uh, thanks to funding from hatch and from saltwater guys association is photo and camera logging. So the ability to log a fish, not just through voice or through taps, but through taking a picture of the fish that you catch um, with your camera on your phone or the ability to upload photos. So the cool thing is because we have all the environmental data uh, going back three years, uh, you can upload in the next version of Got One, you'll actually be able to upload photos of fish you caught going back three seasons, and it will pull in all of the relevant environmental data based on the time and date of the cat and location of the catch from the photo. Um, and then it will actually store your photo in the cloud. And so, um, you know, you can have not only your fish log with all of the, the catch data and, and, you know, the location on the map, but with the photo of, of the actual fish. So we're super excited about that. Um, that photo logging over time is going to unlock a lot of really cool, like, you know, science fiction type features. So we're working on the ability to actually identify the species of the fish from the photo. Um, we are working on the ability to um, estimate length, girth, and ultimately weight of the fish through the photo. Um, we think over time, and this may be many months away still, but we'll actually be able to identify the individual fish uniquely itself. So if you think about the false albacore tagging project, um, you know, the tag, the spaghetti tag that's inserted into the back of the fish is what allows us to determine that a fish that, sw that was caught, tagged, swam away in Montauk is the same fish in Jupiter, Florida. Um, imagine if taking the photo of the fish and got one um, in Montauk and then catching it in Jupiter and taking a photo of it allows us to establish it the same fish uh, migrated from Montauk to Jupiter without actually having to put a physical tag in it, right? We, we think we can actually, through AI and, um, and, and photo-based logging, over time replace the whole technology of the tag. So that's kind of longer term, but very exciting. Uh, we are building um, some really cool data visualizations uh, that will allow anglers to understand the the aggregate data and trends of their fishing and their fishing success uh, and their fishing logs uh, over time. So that that's a big feature coming out. Um, you know, we're looking at being able to um, uh, create and 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 both online and print fishing almanacs. So, you know, your year of fishing and review based on all the data uh, with the photographs of the fish that you caught. Um, and, um, and we're also looking at uh, the ability to um, uh, add, and I mentioned this before, but, you know, to begin to add um, social groups or, you know, fishing 
buddies or let's say you're a guiding outfitter, uh, you want all your guides to be able to share data. Um, we're going to start to allow that sharing of data with other anglers, but only if you select and elect to share that data uh, with a specific groups of people um, under specific circumstances. So maybe you have a fishing trip and you want you know, your five buddies and you to be able to share your fishing data will allow you to do that. So th- those are some of the big features uh, on the immediate roadmap. Yeah, got it. And I know maybe any expectation, I know you're saltwater only right now, you know, at some point maybe steelhead anglers or trout anglers will be able to see. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, so we've had some really interesting conversations about starting to uh, add, uh, you know, species uh, in other saltwater and freshwater fisheries. So we're talking about adding um steelhead and and salmon in the pacific northwest um uh we've had some really interesting conversations about adding freshwater species and you know and 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 there's some different data requirements and and data you know sort of availability for freshwater fish uh but trout bass freshwater bass uh would be top of the list um and then also uh, I think even more immediately on the list is adding, you know, more pelagic species like tuna. Yeah, very, very neat. And I know this next question, it's very, very broad, but I'm, I always, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, I've, I've been lucky to interview a handful of technology folks in the fly fishing space. And I'm always kind of curious about kind of their views on technology. And, you know, we were talking this evening before we started recording that, you know, we're getting tons of press right now around tech, a lot around, you know, generative AI. And I was kind of curious, kind of on your general thoughts on, you know, what kinds of problems kind of lend themselves to technology driven solutions and kind of, you know, where do you see the boundaries where you just can't go there with tech? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, a lot of the new technology coming out, um, Gen AI technology, um, data analytics technology, uh, mobile technology, will just allow us to capture data way more seamlessly, way more easily, allow us to provide really powerful insights and analytics to anglers and to scientists. Um, You know, for anglers, I think it should make the sport more fun, right? It should just make it you know, I'm a data-driven guy. Um, I, you know, I, I geek out on this data. It, it just makes it so much more fun for me to know that my theory about, you know, when I catch more fish or where I catch bigger fish or whatever it is is actually confirmed through the data. Um, we, the, the, the ability to do that with some of these new tools is going to really, really increase over the next few months and years. Um, I think also the new gen, gen, generative AI tools um, will allow us to provide much more actionable insights to anglers about, okay, here's what the data tells you, but what does it mean in terms of, you know, what you should do? When should you fish? When should you book your next uh, guided trip? Uh, what tackle should you be using under these circumstances? Um you know, all that kind of stuff being more prescriptive to, to anglers about what actually works. I think that's going to be really transformative. Um, and I think, you know, at the same thing at the policy level, at the, at the you know, science level, just providing way, way better um, understanding and insight into um, what's going on with our, our fisheries and our fish stocks and, and what sorts of policies um, are going to help us to 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 really maximize those those fisheries and those 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 fish species? Um, and then I think ultimately, you know, making sure that we do that in a way that protects people's privacy and and respects uh, the boundaries in terms of what they want to share um, is going to be really really important. Um, you know, and I think. Um, that AI and technology can actually help us do that as counterintuitive as that may sound. Um, if, if we develop those technologies with that mindset, 
we can actually use these new AI technologies to help us to protect privacy and user interests uh, more effectively. Um, but you have to be really thoughtful and intentional about that, you know, when you design the software um, and and make a commitment to your users that, you know, that's the first principle for what you're doing. Yeah, very, very neat. And Luyen, before I let you go this evening, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I just, you know, I really want everyone to, I just love for people to download the app, dot one, G-O-T-O-N-E, one word, uh, on the App Store, the Apple App Store, uh, and on Google Play Store. And, you know, we, we really value everyone's input. We've gotten some great, great emails and, and you know, suggestions and uh, recommendations and ideas from folks. And, you know, we 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 really thrive off of the reaction from the fishing community to what we've done that, you know, we're, we're, we're here to uh, provide a tool that to, to folks that, that we want to have in the market. And so we, we really, really thrive on, on feedback and input from, from fishermen. And, and um, you know, we just want to make this something that is community driven and that everyone must use. And um and that's that's the main goal of what we're doing. Yeah, and I'll drop links to uh, both of those stores in the show notes. And I would imagine you probably got some social media channels and a website you'd like to share with folks too. Yeah, so our website is uh, is just gotoneapp.com, one word, G-O-T-O-N-E-A-P-P.com. Um, on Instagram, we're uh, gotoneapp. Um you know, we're on Facebook and Twitter under the same handle, uh, but we probably, you know, are going to spend more time on Instagram uh, and on Facebook. Uh, we're also on YouTube. So there, there, there are a number of videos that teach you how to use the app, talk about some of our partnerships. Um, so if you go to Got One App on YouTube, uh, you can find all those videos as well. But uh, the website, uh, gotoneapp.com is, is a good place to start. Yeah. And I'll drop links to all that stuff in the show notes. And Luyan, I really appreciate you, uh, taking the time late after a very long, fruitless day of fishing to talk to me. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Marvin. I really, really enjoyed this and excited for your listeners to, to, you know, engage with us and, and become part of our family. Uh, well, hopefully you uh, suffering through an interview with me this evening will improve your fishing karma tomorrow. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that's up to the fishing gods at this point. Uh, I don't think any of us mere mortals can affect the outcome tomorrow. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> well, best of luck on the water and take care. Thank you, Marvin. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.